Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. And I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. Now, between every episode of this podcast, I do like five episodes of the Marvel Reread Club between every episode of Secrets of Story. So I'm so used to saying, and this is Marvel Reread Club, that it's it's very disconcerting to say this is the Secrets of Story podcast. So, James, how are you? How have you been? Uh, it's been a while since we did an episode. It's been since we had Tori Maldonado on this show, right? Yes. But then I felt so bad because we recorded that episode and then my computer crashed and died and it took forever to get that episode edited. So due to all the computer crashes and dying that I ended up sitting on that Tory episode for a long time. But now we are back. So James, you are about to have your big Christmas party where people reenact Christmas episodes of sitcoms. I am greatly looking yes. forward to it. And we are going to do that. We are going to enjoy it. We are going to travel down to Georgia for Christmas. We are going to have a wonderful time. So James, I was going to ask you why you've called us here together tonight, but in fact, I called us here together because this episode was my idea, but I'll let you go ahead and say why. Why have I brought you here tonight, James, in your mind? Because Matt, you want to talk about something in particular about specifics in storytelling. Am I not right? Yes. So this is the oldest chestnut in all of writing advice, and we have never devoted an episode to it. Specific versus generic. That's Everybody knows, everyone who knows anything about writing advice knows that one of the main pieces of writing advice you get is be specific, not generic. And I, at first, did not address this when I was doing my own writing advice because I thought it was too obvious. But then eventually I found sort of my own version of it that I sort of backed into. And so what I've been doing, I'm about to finish a project that I've been doing on the blog for about two years where I go through the entire Ultimate Story Checklist and I reprint the posts as they appeared in the book, and then collect every post I've written that was similar to it on the blog and combine them into posts called the Expanded Ultimate Story Checklist Posts. And it is over. This week is going to be the end of that project that has been going for two years. And then now you will be able to go to the Ultimate Story Checklist on my blog and for each one, click on it, see the post as it appears in the book, and then see all of the other posts I wrote about it all gathered in one big post. So I did one of those last week, and I said, hey, that would be a good episode of the Secrets of Story podcast, because I talked about the expanded ultimate story checklist. Does the story have something authentic to say about this type of setting? And I talk about how important it is not just to be specific, not generic, but to have something to say about your setting. I will go ahead and just say some of what I said in this post. I say, obviously, you're going to have a huge leg up if your story is set in a place you know well. You're going to already know the syntax, the metaphor families, the jargon, the tradecraft, and the most common ethical dilemmas faced there. All of these things combine to greatly multiply the meaning of a story. After all, this is a big part of having something to say. Do you have something to say about this time and this place? The more authentic details you add, the more believable your world will be, and the more your feelings about this world will ring true and resonate deeply with your audience. If you don't have authentic first-hand knowledge of the place, then you've got a lot of research to do. Of course, some of you might be thinking right now that you get a free pass on this one because your story is set on a fantasy world or a spaceship. I can hardly expect you to show any authentic knowledge of that setting, can I? Yes, I can. Sorry. The writers of Battlestar Galactica could have been forgiven for just winging it. After all, their show was set on a deep space warship many millennia ago but they knew their story would be far more meaningful if it had something authentic to say. So they did a lot of research about what life is like on modern aircraft carriers. In the first season DVD commentaries, they pointed several episodes that were drawn from interviews with modern naval officers, including an episode about deaths from a missile loading accident. It turns out every writer has to hit the books and do some research. So 
Let's start with that. So what do you think about that general advice? This was sort of the first piece I wrote about this. I think this is great advice. I think that depending on the work, you're going to modulate how specific you want to be, uh, depending on how kind of archetypal you, you want to be in, in what you're writing. However, I, I think in general, it's true that if you want to have universal appeal, get very specific. There's yes. a reason why my girls flipped over RRR. Oh, good. That was my favorite movie of last year. Yeah, yeah. A movie, if people haven't heard of it or, or seen it, it's this three-hour action movie made in not Bollywood, but Tollywood in India. And it's, it's a bonkers, confident, amazing action movie. And it has like just so much verve and uh, joy of life in it. And uh, but it but it's based in like very specifics of life in India and colonization in India and Indian history. And uh, my girls don't know much about that. I mean, other than the basics, but uh, they went gaga over it. Um, and I think it's because it was rooted in specifics. My girls clamor often to watch it again. Oh, that's um, awesome. That that was my favorite movie of last year. I absolutely love that movie. Well, yeah, I mean, watching RRR, which was my favorite movie last year, realizing that this movie is, you know, telling this whole epic about a, a whole world I know nothing about. I had never seen a movie made in this language before, even though I didn't get to see it in the actual language. Tegelu, is that the name of the language? Past guest on the show, Jeff Betts, has now married a Indian woman who grew up speaking Tegelu, and she's tried to watch these movies with her family, and they're impossible. You can only find them dubbed in Hindi or in English, and you can't find them in the mm -hmm. original language, which is their native language. But I'm watching this, I'm going like, this is a whole world I know nothing about. I've never seen a Tollywood film. I've never seen a movie in Tegelu, I think it's pronounced before. I, But this is, it's a fully realized world. It's just, you just accept it. You just go along with it. And it's just, it's just, the movie just blows you away. It just steamrolls over you. So, so far, you're on my side. So far, you're saying, yes, always good to have authentic knowledge of the place. You know, I talk about it another point in the book or in the blog about how, like, the easiest way to create a TV show is if you have lived in that world. If you are an ex-doctor who is now creating a TV show about doctors, like Michael Crichton, who created ER, or you are an ex-lawyer creating shows about lawyers, like Tiffany Kelly. Or Eastbound and Down. Yes. Well, I, that then there's that. Okay, so let's talk about that, which is different. There is Eastbound and Down, which is you had this guy who had moved out to Hollywood to try to make it as a Hollywood screenwriter, bombed out when he was out there. Danny McBride came, moved back to Virginia, got a job as a substitute teacher, and then found himself saying to his students, like, oh, well, you may look down on me for being a substitute teacher in Virginia, but I'll have you know that I used to be a big deal screenwriter in LA, and I'm... And that's who I really am. And I'm going to go back out there and I'm going to make it big in L.A. again someday soon. And, you know, this is just a blip for me. And the kids he was right. could not have been more. And this was true. But at the time, the kids could not have been less impressed and were just, you know, had utter contempt for him. And <laughs> he and then he realized, oh, that would actually make a good show. And then he got a chance to pitch a show to HBO. And he said that moment would make a good show. But only if instead of someone who went out to Hollywood to make it as a screenwriter, it's someone who reached a much higher pinnacle and had further to fall. This brings us back to Aristotle, which we say about once every time on this episode, the further someone has to fall, the greater your story will be. And so he turned him into sort of a John Rocker type character, a Atlanta Brave who had a 
infamous meltdown on air shouting racial invective and shouting all sorts of embarrassing things and was kicked off the team. Also made it better that it wasn't about a writer. People yes. hate to read about or watch stories about writers um, unless it's adaptation. Somebody who is involved in something athletic, something that involves action, something that's visual, much more interesting to watch. Or And, and even writers don't want to read or like watch writers. So he was in this interesting position where he wanted to do something authentic. He wanted to do something that was based on his experience. And, but he said, but I don't want it to be a writer. So he's like, well, let me tap into a real experience I had of, of being that substitute teacher. And I'm going to make, you know, I was a substitute teacher. I'm going to make a show about a substitute teacher, but I'm going to substitute the writer backstory. I'm going to remove the writer backstory and replace in a baseball player backstory, which doesn't really change things that much, but it makes it much more interesting to the people watching the show. But it still means he could write about an authentic place in an authentic way. And I talked about how at first, his first bit of success, he had made a movie about, he had made a movie called The Foot Fist Way about mini mall dojos in rural Virginia and that it had been very much, you know, based on his experiences growing up learning Taekwondo and that it had been a modest success. It had been like, you know, the movie didn't make any money in the movie theaters, but it had made him popular in Hollywood because people really liked the movie. It was really funny. But then they were like, what do you have for us now? And then he's like, well, this time I'm going to also do something for my life, but I'm going to find a way to make it bigger. And I'm going to find a way to bring in the baseball. And then for all the baseball stuff, he just had to do the research. Luckily, there had been this actual baseball player they could base the character on. And they had tons of film footage of this guy. It wasn't hard to do the research necessary. And it's easier when you're doing research just for somebody's backstory rather than somebody's front story. And they were able to make it work. They were able to make it authentic. So at this point, we're on the same thing. Specific, not generic. Do the research, even if you're writing about Galactica, do research about what life's like on an aircraft carrier. Do However, it. I did say modulate it depending on how archetypal you want to be. When you have something like Edward Scissorhands, that suburban world that Edward Scissorhands comes down into is very archetypal. And certainly a lot of it is based on kind of memories that Tim Burton has of like what it was like to be like a child or growing up in the 1950s. And he exaggerates them or makes them grotesque or whatever. But it no longer feels specific. It feels kind of more archetypal. It's like Edward Scissorhands. We, nobody would say that Edward Scissorhands is a failure artistically. But it's definitely not a kitchen sink realism massing of everyday details. It's a broader, more archetypal thing. Yes. So, th well, that's going to bring us to, I think, our main bone of contention tonight. So well, let me go ahead. And so... At one point, friend of the show, Jonathan Oxier, sent me, uh, when he was still working as a Hollywood screenwriter, sent me a screenplay he did. And I'm like, this is set in an unnamed city, just any big city USA. And it's about a corporation and you don't know what they do. They just do widgets. It's any big corporation USA. And it's all these things. And I'm like, yeah, I just don't have much patience for those movies. And I just don't, I prefer things that are set in actual cities and about if you're, it's about a corporation, I prefer it be an actual corporation, you know, and a realistic corporation that actually does something. And I had had, and so Oxier and I had a little bit of a like disagreement about that. But then later someone else sent me a novel of his to read and it was, and I had similar notes and that is your blockbuster new novel, Bride of the Tornado, which was finally published 
many years later after I had first given you notes on it. But I, in those original notes that I said to you, I was like, I think I just gave the note over and over again. Like, what's her name? What's what's what town is this? What state is this? What year is this? Because we have already agreed that specifics are better than generics. But you have mentioned Edward Scissorhands, which is an interesting sort of glimpse of a different way to write. And we'll go ahead and jump to the fact that one of the things we're going to talk about today is your new book, which is a book that is about a young woman who is in a small town that is threatened by tornadoes. And then they bring in a young man who they are brought in to fight the tornadoes, a tornado fighter. Is that what he's called? Tornado fighter? Tornado killer. Tornado killer. And then tornadoes eventually destroy the town. And she involves some sort of a cursed romance with the tornado killer. And in your book, your heroine is never named. And the city is never named, and the state is never identified, and the year is never identified, and really the decade is never identified. Mm, I don't know. The only that's just not true. There are VHS cassettes, so that's like the one of the only ways we can sort of pin it down. Like, all right, that gives us a year range. No, I mean she's she's kind of into the song "Darling Nikki," so it has to be after 1984, which is when "Purple Rain" came out. Do you ever say the words "Purple Rain" in the book? No, but she talks about. She's into this song that this certain DJ is playing and that and it, it's clear from the text that it's Darling Nikki. It's clear um, if you know the song Darling Nikki. Uh, everybody should know the song Darling Nikki, but go on. Um, okay, so you are you are demanding a certain amount. From your, you're demanding that your audience pick up on some very vague context clues. So, you know, so... Specific the, context clues. The musical... But vague. If it was specific, you would say Purple Rain. That's the thing. I think that's an error. I think that people, I think nobody thinks of their own name all day long. And nobody thinks of the name of their town or their state all day long. If you're going to go deep into somebody's subjective confrontation with the world, it's, it's going to necessarily be a little bit vague. Like There is no more specific book than Proust's In Search of Lost Time. In all 3,000 pages, we never learn the name of the protagonist. We never learn it. There are certain effects you can also get by not naming things, not only in making something feel archetypal, but also in if you don't name somebody, then you can't dismiss it as easily. If you say, oh, her name is Eileen Bloopman, you say, oh, well, of course, that's the kind of thing that an Eileen Bloopman would do. But if you don't name the person, and if it's the main character and their name is never revealed, then you can, uh, there's a little bit of almost complicity that you have with them. And then when certain things happen, such as like she reveals like at a certain point, the tornado killer says her name. It's a very romantic moment. Or the villain, Mr. Z, says her name. And it feels like a moment of violation. There are certain effects you can get there because you're being locked out of what her name is. Um, but other people are using it in the story. It's an artistic choice that is for a certain effect and not just a piece of information that is uh, carelessly omitted. Yeah, I don't think anybody would read Brother the and go like, oh, dumb James Kennedy, he forgot to tell us what the name of the heroine is. And I talk about on my blogger book about probably the most famous novel with an unnamed hero is Rebecca. And mm -hmm. in Rebecca, how we never find out 
the name of the second Mrs. De Winter, other than that she is the second Mrs. De Winter, because her whole world is dominated by this other first name, Rebecca, the name of her new husband's first wife. And she is reduced to a nameless person who all anyone can talk about is Rebecca, Rebecca, Rebecca. Nobody talks about her, and her name is never even revealed to us. And then eventually they made a sequel to the book, and uh, after Daphne du Maurier was dead, and even in the sequel, they decided to never reveal the name. The name of the sequel was The Second Mrs. De Winter. But I talk about how there was a certain Jungian power to not naming the heroine of Rebecca, in that I talk about in the film adaptation, you never see a painting of the original Rebecca. You never see the original Rebecca's face. She thinks she's found a painting of the original Rebecca, but it's not. And how you've got one character who has a name but no face, and you've got another character who has a face but no name. And mm -hmm. you get this sort of Jungian doubling of the two characters, which, and then I talk about how in other Hitchcock films, like in North by Northwest, his name is Roger O. Thornhill, and he says the, the O stands for nothing because he really has no middle name. And mm -hmm. I talk about how Hitchcock's former boss, David O. Selznick, the O stood for nothing. And how, but when somebody says in a book, this is my middle name, then that means that's what they are. And, you know, if somebody says danger is my middle name, that means, you know, they live for danger. And if someone says nothing is my middle name, then nothing is what they are. And Roger Thornhill, like Rebecca, keeps coming into the situation where there's this other secret agent who he who has a name but not a face. And then he's got a face, but his name is literally nothing. His middle name is nothing. And how this can be a very powerful thing. And that's what you're saying. Yeah, that's some of the power you're talking about trying to tap into by not naming your heroine. I mean, have as the process has gone along, I give you the note, you got to give her a name. How many people did you get that note from? Was I the only Philistine who said that? Have you had to fight to keep her nameless? Uh, I didn't have to fight my editor. I mean, there, there's always going to be some uh, jag off on Goodreads is going to be like, and I, didn't, I got to end this book and I didn't even figure out her name. But like, you can't go by them. Nobody who I care about their opinion uh, said, and what was her name? I, I think that people are, are smarter readers than that. So I said that. <laughs> I said that, in fact. And you're saying no one who you care about their opinion said that. Why did you ask me for notes over and over again if you didn't care about my opinion, James? I wanted you to finish reading it. <laughs> I see. But then you never, uh, why not identify the city? Why not identify the state? Same reason. It's in the Midwest. Again, if I said, this is Twin Rivers, Ohio, it would become too specific. It would take away from an archetypal feel to it. And also, when you have something that is written at this level of intimacy, people don't, in their intimate thoughts to themselves, think about the specific name and state of where they live. It's just, when they're talking to themselves, all that shit is just given. It, it would feel false. And, but also, I think there's a certain power in leaving things vague. Something doesn't necessarily have to be specific in order to have power. And so sometimes by leaving something unspecific, it gains more power. But it's an artistic decision. It's not a mechanical decision. It's not a decision that is made from rules. It's a decision that's made case by case, work by work. And in this case, that was a decision that was right. As you say, Purple Rain does narrow it down a little bit. If you had named Purple Rain, but you don't, you quote a lot of song lyrics from Oklahoma, but you never, the word Oklahoma never appears 
in the in the book, correct? Mm -hmm. You quote poems from Emily Dickinson, but the name Emily Dickinson never appears in the book. To a certain extent, you're just counting on people reading this book going like, I know that's Emily Dickinson. So I'm part of the smart club with author James Kennedy. But when you're a child and you would read things, it wouldn't matter if somebody said, and here's a poem by Emily Dickinson, because it'll all be alien to you anyway. And this character is a child. And so whether the poet that she was encountering was named Emily Dickinson or Johanna Thornstein, it wouldn't matter. You know what I mean? The thing, the only thing that matters is a poem that she was encountering. Well, like, that would, Emily yeah. Dickinson doesn't have any valence for her. And so, but as soon as you say Emily Dickinson, then a whole host of associations comes in that I did not want to have to deal with because when you are uh, somebody her age, like 16, you're really encountering all these things fresh. And you have to clear the decks for something to be encountered fresh. So you were you were going for a sense of freshness. You were going for a sense of, you know, the world is new. Things don't have names yet. This is this is someone who is new to this world, is not learning these names. There's a real sense of fragility to your character. There's a real sense of this character is being imprinted. This is a character who is being doesn't have as tough of a shell or as tough as an exterior as she wants to have. She is newly hatched and she is being imprinted by the world. That seems to be what you're Yes, what but, you're but also, I mean, she has her own willfulness about it. But, I mean, there's a lot of specificity. Even, I mean, the, the shallowest way that you can be specific is say, I live in Twin Rivers, Idaho, and my name is Eileen Blukman. You know, but like, there are much more deeper and more interesting ways to be specific. Like there's a lot of very specific stuff about the way she feels about the church in the town, the way she feels about like the deacon who has like a, you know, who's exhaustingly cheerful and has a haircut that's 15 years out of date. Like she, like there's a lot of specific things about like the shrimp snacks that she gives to her cat or the way a shitty bus station feels in a small town, the way a teenage sleepover feels, the way she feels about the, the DJ in the large town that is nearby, which is based on growing up in Troy, Michigan, which is not as small a town as in Bride of the Tornado. But like there was a DJ in Detroit called the Electrifying Mojo, uh, who I kind of base the, char- the DJ in Bride of the Tornado on. And like Detroit radio in the 1980s was really interesting. And late at night, there were these mysterious voice DJ called the Electrifying Mojo and he started a show with like this, it's a landing of the mothership. And he played like, like Detroit underground, like techno funk, like new wave electronic music. And then like this all this like sci fi commentary. And that's how I first heard like Parliament Funkadelic, B 52s, Kraftwerk, like Prince B sides. And I was obsessed with this guy. And so that is a very specific living in the suburbs of Detroit, kind of, and then listening to this Detroit DJ guy and so that is in bride of the tornado that's a very specific thing but if i had identified him as oh this is a girl in michigan in this time and she's listening to electrifying mojo from detroit it would not be as powerful i think i think it's more archetypal to change his name and obscure the names of the cities and make it a little more universal so this is something that could be happening in oklahoma or could be happening in ohio or whatever Well, so that's interesting. So universal, people have this idea of, are you in danger if you include very specific things in your book, that it is going to be only specifically meaningful to people with those specifics in their own life, and that 
you should keep things vaguer because then it will be more universally meaningful. Or is something more universally meaningful the more specific it is? No, I, I think it's approaching it the wrong way. It's case by case. You And some works, you want to work more archetypally. Like, for instance, Grady Hendrix wrote, uh, also on Quirk, a great book called My Best Friend's Exorcism. And it, have you read My Best Friend's Exorcism? No, I've not. It, so it's very much based on a specific southern town. I forget which one. But like a, a town that he's like a suburban, like Georgian town. And he very much nails it. Like he, he like names the songs that were popular in that year. He like names the town. He names, you know, the product. Like at one point he talks about like New York seltzer. Like, oh my God, I haven't thought about New York seltzer since 1987. Do you remember New York seltzer? Yes, it was very strange. It, it, yeah, yeah. So like, that, and I was like, oh, this is so satisfying. And even, I love my Bextron's exorcism, but I did not want to write something like that uh, because number one, it had already been done. But number two, like as much as I love that book, I didn't feel that it was in my wheelhouse to write something like that, that traded in such very specific references. And there is a danger at a certain point, like if you're as clever enough to get the New York Seltzer reference, which is essentially no different than like saying, you're like, oh, and if you're clever enough to be like James Kennedy, you can get this reference. Well, you know, if you're clever enough to be born before 1980, you might get the New York Seltzer reference. But it, it's, there, there is, you do, if, once you get too far down the rabbit hole of references, after a certain number of years pass, those references become incomprehensible to anybody who wasn't born before a certain year. And so I think it's better to keep it a little bit archetypal and I think there's a reason why Edward Scissorhands still works as a movie now, because or Blue Velvet, frankly, because it is not specific. It's archetypal. Well, it's just specific enough. It's a question of taste and of what is appropriate for the work of how specific you want to be. This brings us back to my post, because I say, so what I do in these posts is I say, here was what I originally wrote, and here was how I rewrote it for the book, and then here is various posts I wrote about later that were rule book case file posts where I talk about like, here's other movies that are good examples of this rule. And then I do straying from the party line posts, straying from the party line posts are posts I've done over the years about how good stories, stories that I liked broke rules of mine and talk about how they broke it and do they get away with it? So then yeah, it's very honest of you. It's, 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 it's very scientific. So then I talk about straying from the party line, the inauthentic setting of Blue Velvet. I was doing a week of posts about Blue Velvet, a movie that I dearly love. And I said, but wait, here is a deviation. In this movie, the setting is inauthentic and is based more on the idea of small town life rather than observations of it. The problem, specifics are always better than generics. Your story setting should influence your character's metaphor, family, syntax, hobbies, goals, etc. in order for any of those elements to feel real. An attempt to create a generic city that's recognizable to everyone will usually have the opposite effect, leaving everyone alienated, whereas using a lot of specifics about a particular region can paradoxically make audiences from every region feel at home. Then I say, does the movie get away with it? And then I say, yes, Blue Velvet does get away with it. The tone setting is crucial here. The Americana imagery that begins the movie is so startlingly vivid that it intentionally feels unreal. Then we get shots of Jeffrey's mother watching film noir on TV that predict Jeffrey's movements. 
that is the exception that proves the rule because this movie is about 80s America's delusional idealization of small towns and of the past and the yawning abyss between reality and fantasy. This movie is pointedly saying to us, this is unreal. Don't buy it. He's saying that, you know, you begin with this perfect shot of a white picket fence and red roses. And then somebody is watering the roses and has a heart attack. And then the camera dives down underneath the roses and underneath the grass and finds out there's these teeming ants underneath the ground. And that is how the movie begins. And the whole thing is about how you have this surface in the town. Now, the, the movie is, I think at one point they do say the movie is set in North Carolina, but nobody yeah, in the movie I, has North Carolina accents. It no, feels like Pacific Northwest, just like Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's it's a very it feels like a very inauthentic picture of North Carolina. It said in Lumberton, which is supposedly like Lumbertown, North Carolina, there doesn't have any real feeling of the lumber industry there, although you do hear a little bit about it on the radio. You don't have any real sense of it being North Carolina, or you don't get the feeling, oh, David Lynch must have really lived in North Carolina in order to get all these details right. But then it's interesting that then David Lynch sort of followed up Blue Velvet with the show Twin Peaks, which is much more authentic. Twin Peaks is set in Washington, right? Yeah, yeah. Twin Peaks, Washington. Washington. And, you know, the lumber industry is, it's also a lumber town, but the lumber industry is much more real in Twin Peaks. It's much more of a part of the story. And I thought that Twin Peaks was interesting sort of example of turning this movie into a TV show and going like, okay, let's, instead of, he was doing a lot of the same things. He's saying something about the idea of America in both Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks. But... (sighs) Uh, yeah. What okay, do you go say? on, and then let me let me jump in. Go on. <laughs> go ahead. It. Jump in. I mean, it wouldn't have had the power if he hadn't lived in a place like that, though. You know, I mean, he did grow up in like Missoula, Montana, I think. Um, and like, the, think about there. There are specific things in. It, I think it's clearly based on his time in small town Montana. I mean, there's a scene in which. Uh, the Isabella Rossellini character appears naked outside uh, and she's wandering around. And that's inspired by a real life experience that David Lynch had when he was a kid. And he and his brother like saw a naked woman walking down a street at night. And I, I think like there's things like, like when the Dennis Hopper character, the Frank Booth character is like yelling at Kyle McLaughlin's character, like what kind of beer do you want? Oh, Heineken. What Heineken? Fuck that shit. Paps blue ribbon. Like that is an authentic detail. Somebody saying something like that. Right. Yes. And then like there's always in all these towns, there's like the suburban part that Kyle McLaughlin and uh, Laura Dern's characters live in. But there's like the, the seedy part, like the apartment building where Isabella Rossellini's character lives or the weird whorehouse where Dennis Hopper's character takes Kyle McLaughlin's character. Like that, that is like if you've ever been to a place where you think it's going to be like, oh, like, oh, maybe some glamorous, sexy things are going to happen. And it's like so depressingly kind of awful, uh, that that scene where, where it is uh, un- until Dean Stockwell starts singing in dreams. But like that, that and it becomes magical. But it's like such a deadening place that it seems like it comes from a place of lived experience. And the, even like the weird gas mask that Frank Booth uses, the Dennis Hopper character uses. OK, maybe David Lynch never met somebody who used one of something like that. But he knew that small town crooks are freaks and they have weird habits. You don't get the feeling in Blue Velvet that like, oh, this is a guy who has never lived in the world and doesn't know what life is like. 
and is and is making you know a sort of silly movie about the idea of life rather than the reality of life right he's making it's an archetypal movie and it's 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 artfully not being specific because that's what you you can't just say the more specific your movie is the better or the more specific your story is the better there there it's depending on the work you have to you're artfully archetypal or specific i feel in dare to know your second novel i forget what city was dare to know set in you identify the city there right chicago i mean it's, it's chicago and then san francisco that's extremely specific yeah so i mean so this is obviously same author Forever the Tornado, Tear to Know, going for different effects, going for, mm-hmm. in one novel, going for an effect of being archetypal, I guess you're saying, and saying, I don't want to name the heroine, the city, the state, the year. I don't want to name any of that because I want I want it to be something that is more universal than that. And then same author writing Dare to Know going, okay, this is very specifically Chicago. This is very specifically, when you talk about Pixar movies or the Beatles, I'm trying to imagine writing Dare to Know in a way where you avoid ever saying the word Beatles. <laughs> but, but to be sure, in Dare to Know, I don't mention the, the main character's name either. Oh, the main character didn't have a name in Dare to Know? No. Why? Why, James? Why do you do this? It makes a sense of complicity. If Again, you can distance yourself from somebody if you give them a name. Especially if it's a first person, you become partly complicit with them if they don't have a name. Because then you fill in your own, essentially. Um, as soon as you give them a name, you can push them away and say, that's something that Eileen Blukman would do. Okay. Um, I, I, I just can't, I can't imagine it. So I was going through recently, I made a list of everything I ever wrote. And I was like, okay, I wrote 17 full-length screenplays. And I was thinking about plays and I was going back and I was looking at them and going like, where were these 17 screenplays set? And they only the first two screenplays I ever wrote were set in unnamed cities. The first two screenplays mm-hmm. I ever wrote were very much were very postmodern and were very much like this is it is the city. It is you know, and they were set in unspecified decades as well. They were like it could be the forties, it could be the fifties, it could be today. And those were majestic, which I actually made as my first screenplay later, you know, that I actually shot as a pulling feature. And Poor Fool, which I actually made. So the only two movies, the only two features of mine that ever got made, I made myself. And they were both set in unspecified cities. But then once I started writing screenplays that were intended for other people to shoot, they were always set very specifically. And I was going through and I was saying like, okay, what what was the sense of place in all these as I was going through them? And I was rereading some of them. And, you know, I uh, we, sh- we could definitely get more episodes of this podcast out of some of the, we could definitely get another adaptation episode out of the Cornell Woolrich adaptation that I wrote, which is absolutely fascinating to reread now. But anyway, I would never dream of, I feel like it gives me so much power. So I'm writing a novel right now, which is one of the reasons I'm looking back at the old things I've done. And the first line of my novel is 1992 was a terrible year to be a communist. And I think just having saying 1992 gives me such a feeling of power in as a writer saying that this is set in Atlanta, saying there's just so much that just the specificity of Atlanta, I feel like gives me. And I can't imagine not giving myself that specificity, not giving myself the specificity of the year. I think it depends on what kind of story you want to write. Yeah. Dreams don't happen in any specific town 
and you don't have a name in your dreams. Yeah. If you're going for a dreamy atmosphere, you're going to smear things and be vague and be obscure on purpose. Not everybody's going to go with you on this journey. Not everybody likes David Lynch. Um, but if that's the kind of thing that you like and you want, then that's the kind of thing you're going to write. Now, it doesn't prevent me from writing something specific in the future. Um, and there's a lot of that is specific about Bride of the Tornado. There like, is. The details of like rotary phones in your house and like picking up one and overhearing a conversation on the other. That doesn't happen anymore. It's a specific detail of what it would be like in 1986. Everything about like the, the church, everything about like running down in the basement in the 80s. Right. So that would happen even now when a tornado comes through. There is a lot of like particular specifics to that world. And also just specifics of that come from my own childhood that are put into that book. Um, However, it depends on the kind of story you want to tell and the kind of effects you want to get. And if you want to get some kind of effect that pivots off of known history that everybody knows about, oh, this, oh, yeah, oh my God, 1992. Yes, it's 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. Of course, it would be bad for, you know, you'd be a communist in 1992, whatever. Oh, yeah, and Breeders' Cannonball came out that year. You know, all this stuff comes in. But if you want to clear the field in certain ways and, and want to work in a more archetypal way, you don't want to do that. It would be an artistic mistake to do that. And so it depends on the kind of story that you want to tell. Yeah, let's talk about Blue Velvet versus Twin Peaks. They both had something to say about the idea of America, but one did it in a way that was more generic and the other one did it in a way that was more specific to a certain time and place. One did it in a way that was intentionally generic in its time and place. The other one did it in a way that was much more intentionally specific. It wasn't specific. The people in Twin Peaks do not act like Americans in 1990. They act like people from the 1950s from David Lynch's imagination. They wear cashmere sweaters and and plaid skirts and dance dreamily around the bar. There's guys in black leather jackets on motorcycles acting like Marlon Brando. This is not America in the late 80s, early 90s. This is David Lynch's archetypal imagination. Yes, I think you're certainly right. But he's got more specifics than he had. There was no sense of region in Blue Velvet. There was no sense of like, okay, this is the South, this is North Carolina. Here is a very strong sense in this one that, okay, this is the Pacific Northwest, and we've got a lumber mill, we've got all of these specific elements, we've got, you know, crossing the border into Canada, we've got all of these all of these more specific elements. But yes, but it was still very dreamy and nonspecific in certain ways. They have two things in common. They're both lumber towns. And what happens in lumber towns? You saw logs. And what <laughs> is that a metaphor for? Dreaming. They're sleeping. This is dreaming. These are both dream worlds. And in the dream world, you're an archetypal world. And so in the famous first pilot of Twin Peaks, in which like everybody leaves the hallway, and then you just see that one student kind of do a weird dance shuffling off the other hallway. That's something that you see in a dream. You know, it's not something that you see in real life. And that's why it's powerful. It's powerful because he gave his own weird subconscious or creativity or his own idiosyncrasy free reign over the much more boring social and political realities of the time. He didn't talk about George Bush and he didn't talk about the fall of the Berlin Wall and he didn't talk about anything about that. And that's why it lasts. And so there is a way in which 
being so hyper-specific. And before we said, oh yeah, it's a way that the way to become a universal is to be hyper-specific. In a way, in some ways it's true. In some ways, it's totally not. It's a way to make yourself dated immediately. And the reason why Twin Peaks is still enjoyable now is because it doesn't engage at all with any reality in America in 1990. Hmm. I guess that's true. I think of like, what were examples of more specific shows at the time? And I guess there was Murphy Brown, or there was there were various shows that were really grappling with what was going on in the world in 1992, that we certainly probably sell fewer DVD sets in any given year than Twin Peaks says. The only thing that matters is it the cultivation of an artist's idiosyncrasy. And some artists have terrible idiosyncrasies and they make bad art. But some artists have great idiosyncrasies and they make great art. So those are the wonderful, top-notch, number one things that everybody loves. And then there's the things that journeyman artists do, which are competent and they last for a while and then they go away. And I think those things can benefit from the lessons of be specific or whatever. But I think a true visionary should trust their vision and trust their idiosyncrasy. And then if you, if you don't have a vision, yeah, go ahead and be specific with your social and political realities. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think that what you're saying has coherence to it. I think that you're making a strong point. I'm just not sure I agree with it. I just think that for me as a writer, and I feel like for probably most writers who are listening to this, you get, I mean, this is a recurring trip in fantasy. There's a tremendous amount of power in naming things. There's a tremendous amount of power. You don't want your heroes and heroines to be named because you don't want people to go like, oh, I know that sort of person. That's that's this sort of person. That's, you know, Emily Bleepborp or whatever you said. You know, I know what sort of thing that person will do. And if we don't know their name, then we're not going to be able to pin them down. But I think that a lot of people, obviously most characters in fiction are named. And I think most writers get a real sense of, you know, they want to have the sense of like, oh, this is this person. And that person is going to be a person who is going to have certain baggage attached to their name. And that is something that they're going to have to deal with as a character. Certainly, if you look at a show like Mad Men, which I think is, I would say, is a better show than Twin Peaks. I would say is, I would say is the greatest show ever made. And it's a show that is very, very, very specific about times and places. You know, the the name of the street is in the name of the show. And it's got a lot to say about names. And you've got a hero with a name that turns out to be a fake name that he stole from a dead soldier. And it's a show that is just laser hyper specific in terms of the exact moment that every episode is set and has a tremendous amount to say about not America as a whole and not the idea of America, but about, well, it does have, that's not true at all. It's got a massive amount to say about America as a whole or the idea of America, but it's saying it through telling a very specific story about a very specific time and place. And with names being huge and every character every character's name being one of the many things they have to grapple with and we later find out that don draper's real name is dick whitman and i always thought that might be a reference to the london mayor dick whittington who is considered to be like the first self-made man in history who was you know a poor man who rose to become mayor of london in the 1600s i forget somewhere around then anyway i think i mean were you a Mad Men fan i never seen it you've never um, seen Mad Men. No, no, I haven't. I think we've talked about this before. But I think these are just two different kinds of stories. And I think that you are a Tom Wolfe guy. 
It's so funny. I am reading Bonfire of the Vanities for the first time right now. Okay. Well, you're a Tom Wolf guy. You like to collect social minutiae and deploy it in a story-like way. And, and I think... Story-like. Like I love that. I'm like, Matt, when you write, you write in a story-like way. <laughs> I can see how you think you're doing something. I have read a lot of Tom Wolf, and I find him very interesting as I'm reading him. And I don't think of him at all after I put the book down. Yeah. Whereas there are more visionary authors, like let's say, I don't know, Ray Bradbury, who I will think about until the day I die, who are more archetypal. And maybe, I mean, Ray Bradbury is very specific in some ways, but he's also very vague. Some writers, their report, I mean, Tom Wolfe is a reporter. He's Balzac, right? Like he's somebody who's taking a lot of social, historical, political information, and he's kind of crafting a story around it. Those stories, since they're constrained by social, political, and historical information, they're, they're constrained by that. And so they're not going to hit a kind of psychological depth that, say, I don't know, Dostoevsky is going to hit. I admire Tom Wolfe, and I, I, his project is interesting, but just like, say, um, who's the dude who wrote the corrections? Jonathan Franzen. Jonathan Franzen. There's a lot of sociological data in those books that feels immediately dated after their moment has passed. Like, read A Man in Full and just kind of shake your head at this point. Or even A Bonfire of the Vanities. Oh, I am. And I am shaking my head. It is nowhere near as good as it thinks it is. Right. So this is the danger of this hyper-specificity. You, you, you get to be a little smartass. You get to know exactly the right website to refer to, the right brand to say, the right dr- like drummer from that punk band that people know about. Um, and, and you get all those details right. And there's no, it, it can't help but get in the way of some kind of story power. Um, and I think it's better to commit. It's not better. These are two different kinds of stories. The kind of story that I prefer, the kind of story that lasts me, the kind of story that I like to write is while not being detached from the world, it's not like a fairy tale. Like it's very much ingrained in my childhood experience. And my kind of observations of life as a child and as an adolescent, but it's not ingrained in kind of like a spy magazine smartassness about, oh, I'm a New York guy who knows everything about everything. And that is what Tom Wolf feels like to me. And I think that is a kind of tendency that I'm afraid that your advice is going to push people towards. Well, I don't think that's what Tom Wolf was saying. I think that Tom Wolf was saying, I am a Southern guy who knows all about New York. I'm an outsider who has figured out, I forget where Tom Wolf is from, but, uh, but he was, you know, he's not he from New York. He did wear a white suit. Yes, yeah. he wore a white suit. I forget where he's from, but he wasn't from New York. He was very much seeing this as like, I have come in and as an outsider have nailed you in a way that you could not see yourself, in a way you could not nail yourself. It's effective for about three years after the book is published. And yeah. then it becomes immediately dated. It's a, Yeah, he is certainly a good example of someone who was writing about their own time in a way that was very much trying to be the definitive statement for here is what is going on right now. And then, yeah, then he wrote, so I have thought about rereading, I read A Man in Full a long time ago, which was his follow-up book about Atlanta in the 90s. And I am now writing a book about Atlanta in the 90s. And I felt like, oh, should I reread A Man in Full? So I don't want to get into the book I'm writing, but the book I'm writing, you know, I am doing all of this research about what was going on and I'm just loving everything I find and going like, oh, I can't wait to mention that. I can't wait to mention that. You know, these specifics are going to make my book 
So I've been reading Rita Likes my book, and I read The Incredibly True Jari, The Incredible, The Absolute, what's it called? The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, something like that. I read mainly graphic novel memoirs that everyone's been writing recently. Mexican is absolutely brilliant. If you have not read Mexican by Pedro Martin, go out and read it. Everybody should read it. It is a book that is packed with specifics. Most of these books, like my book, have a very specific year and a very specific place. I read Dan Santat's new book, First Time for Everything. These are people who are doing what I'm doing and writing a memoir about one year in their life. And Dan Santat's book just won the National Book Award. And they are very much starting with a year and a place. Mexican is about a 10-year-old boy driving with his family down from a small California town down to their Mexico town the parents are from and back. And it is, could not, I mean, it could not be packed with more details, very specific. And I've never spent any significant time in my life in Mexico. I'm not Mexican. I think that this is a book that could not have been published five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago in terms of writing a book for kids that is written with an understanding that hopefully white book buyers will be interested in an authentically Mexican story. And I think that that is sort of a new idea that publishers have, that white kids, there's a new generation of white kids coming along that is more interested in authentic stories that are not white. And I think that, and I think that this is someone who would have been, you know, who would have been told 20 years ago, oh, write a book that it, it could be sort of based on your experiences, but write it in a way that's just sort of do what J.K. Rowling did, where she took elements of her own schooling. But it's like, but, you know, make it about a boy and, you know, add a magical element. And I, I don't know. I mean, now, now you're just doing counterfactual. So who knows if that conversation happened or not? That's something that's in your imagination. OK, let's leave J.K. Rowling out of it. Right. But the, OK, you're saying what a publisher might have said to somebody who might have written a story. What I'm saying is that in the realm of memoir, of course, all these details are extremely important. If you're writing a memoir, uh, if you're writing something else, it it becomes a little bit different. But why do we read memoirs? Why do we read memoirs? Yes. Why do we read memoirs? For the particular pleasures that memoirs give that other things don't give. Because it's real. Because Yeah. We like memoirs for that. And we like other stories for what they can give. And so... We, we're not, I'm not going to falsely universalize the lessons that we learn from memoirs to all stories, which is what I feel that you're drifting towards. Well, obviously, you get a lot of stories where you get a lot of fictional novels, and then you realize sort of halfway through, oh, this is a memoir. You know, this is, this person is supposedly writing, they're, you know, it's certainly the absolute, absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian. It's about someone who was not named Sherman Alexie, but, you know, absolutely true is in the title of the book, and you realize, like, oh, this book gets all of its power from our understanding that this is a semi-autobiographical Yeah, story. everybody has exactly one of those books in them. Yeah, I think you're right. And you can't, you can't necessarily get a career out of that. So do you have that book in you, James? Or, are you, or do you not have that book in you? I don't know what that means. I, I'm not an interesting person. David Lynch isn't an interesting person. Proust was not an interesting person. Steven Spielberg is not an interesting Proust? person. Wait, Proust is not an interesting person? Proust no. wasn't writing something autobiographical? It was very autobiographical, but he's a very uninteresting person. Uh, um, the key just like basically spent most of his time in bed being sick. And he, he had just kind of like a couple sallies into the belle epoque French aristocracy. But he himself, a blow by blow account of his days is not interesting. 
and most of our lives are not interesting. But he wrote, but he published a seven volume memoir. Artists are not interesting. Artists should not be interesting. You get one memoir. Uh, you can blow it all there, or you can take your lived experience, transmute it, and, and do many, many books. I, I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. It's my instinct. What's interesting with Spielberg, how, you know, Spielberg made all of these movies that, you know, it's interesting. You watch his movie. And then, and then you get the Fablemans. You get, like, the master key to all of them. Yes. You watch the Fablemans, and it's fascinating in, you know, his recent autobiographical film, and you can see these little seeds of all of his other films being sown over the course of the Fablemans. Yeah. You can see like, oh, okay, he used elements of this elements of his life and he used those in Jaws or he used those in Yeah, the girls encounters. demanded to watch E.T. recently and so uh -huh. we watched it. And oh, watching E.T. post-watching the Fablemans is quite an experience. Oh, that would be, that would be fascinating. Basically, E.T. is the absent father. Basically, the absent father is split into two characters. Uh, the alien and the the NASA guy with the keys. E.T., just like Spielberg's father, is a technical genius, but remote, you know. But he's also acting, he's also doing like weird kind of stereotypical father things like staying at home all day and just getting drunk. But then there's like the, the guy from NASA who's kind of like tracking him. We never learn his name, but he kind of like seems to at least symbolically get together with the mother at the end. Like there's a lot of, Basically, Spielberg clearly mined his own emotional shit for that movie, and that's what gave it a lot of its power. But nobody would call it a memoir. E.T., you mean? Yes. Yeah. So E.T. was, in many ways, his most autobiographical film, I think, before The Fablemans, and was also one of his most successful films for The Fablemans, although he, is, he had no shortage of successful films. But then he, and then, but then eventually he was like, screw it, my parents are now dead. I can go ahead and tell the story. And as I'm working on this autobiographical novel myself, I'm like, should I wait till my parents are dead to do this? I don't know. Famously, uh, Eugene O'Neill would not allow Long Day's Journey at Night to be performed while the people in it were still alive and had a stipulation that it couldn't be performed for many years after it was written. And at one point I was, I was reading, and I went on a project in my, late 20s, early 30s, go like, I'm going to read all the great books I never read. And I did. I, I made a big list of all the great books I never read, and I read them all. And I was telling my mom my reaction to these books. I was saying, like, most of them, I'm like, oh, I can see why this is such a great novel. This is so wonderful. I'm so glad I finally read this great classic. And there was really only one example of reading one of the great classics. And I'm like, this just sucks. And guess what book that was? I don't know what. Dante's Inferno. I read Dante's Inferno and I'm like, this book just sucks. This is a sucky book. This is a bad book. And I was saying to my mom after I read it, like, this feels like I have searched a 13-year-old's locker and found his book in which he has written his elaborate fantasies about the excruciating death of all of his mm -hmm. bullies. Do you still feel that way? And yeah, well, I haven't reread it since, so I still feel that way. I mean, I think it's kind of thing that, that, just like James Joyce's Ulysses, you have to go into it with a Virgil. You have to go into it with somebody who's going to guide you through it and, and make you alive to the social and political and uh, historical things that are happening. But it was interesting, yeah, to read all these books without, you know, I'd read a lot, I mean, I was an English major and I'd read this a lot like of books. It's like a very new criticism, 1950s <laughs> yeah. way of approaching literature. I'd read a lot of books. I was doing it without zero context 
and just thinking in a, some kind of like Mortimer Adler way that it's just all like, like it's it's kind of it's the, the 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 cream will rise to the top. That's not how it works. I had read a lot of books with the help of professors over the years, and then now was going back and doing all the ones that I had missed with professors and just trying them on my own. And just, yeah, just judging them as, you know, just like, okay, just I, as a person buying this book off the shelf and reading it, what do I think of it? And most of them, I was able to go like, oh, I can see why this is great. I can see why this works so well. But I was talking to my mom about reading Dante's Inferno. I'm going like, if I read this book and I confiscated this from a 13-year-old's locker, I would first thing I would do is I would expel that 13-year-old from school because he has very sick, sadistic fantasies about how all of his... You have these fantasies of expelling 13-year-old kids, I think. <laughs> exactly. I think you have these fantasies about, about confiscating 13-year-old lockers. I think that's the thing that we need to uh, focus on. Like, these thir- these fictional 13-year-olds haven't done anything wrong, but you're, like, going in their lockers and kicking them out of school. I said this to my mom, who was an English professor, and she said, well, of course... After he published The Inferno, Dante was expelled from Florence. <laughs> they did say, uh-huh. uh, oh, yeah. Saying, you think you were right. <laughs> they said, uh, dude, you cannot stay here anymore. You have sick revenge fantasies about everyone who has ever wronged you here in Florence. We do not want you actually making any of these revenge fantasies come true. You are expelled for life. Guys, you heard it here first. Matt Bird of Atlanta, Georgia has completely owned Dante. <laughs> I- I've taken him down. He is canceled. Uh, uh, you don't have to read it. Uh, Matt Bird has let you know. Uh, um, Hashtag cancel Dante. And then yeah. I said, and then she was like, well, that's true of every great author is that you have to be willing to, if you write something truly great, then you're going to end up being told you can never go back to your hometown. And he said that certainly James Joyce was never allowed to live in Dublin again after he published. It's not that he was never allowed. He, by choice, never went back there. He called Ireland the great shrunken cunt of the world, and he also called it the old sow that devours its farrow. The key did not want to go back. He did go back briefly. He tried to open up a movie theater there. Oh, wow. His business venture failed. He was like ahead of his time. And then he just went back to uh, Europe uh, to, to get drunk with Hemingway and shit. But you, you are right. As Graham Greene famously said, there is a splinter of ice in the heart of a writer you do have to be ruthless as a writer and you do have to use your life in a way that might hurt people. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and that's what I'm, I'm certainly grappling with right now. It's- here's, the, here's the thing you're going to find. Uh-huh. You think that you're going to be hurting people. They won't be hurt. They won't care. I have wondered that. A, they probably won't read it. <laughs> and B, then they read it, they won't care. Uh, I have found. Yeah. Well, my parents are probably going to read it, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and they don't necessarily come off very well in the book. Uh-huh. But I mean, you know, Spielberg specifically said he made the Fablemans because his parents were dead. He's like, now mm-hmm. that my parents are dead, I can make this movie honestly, which I couldn't have made while they were still alive. But we'll see. But okay, well, James, I think we have had a lot of fascinating discussion about specifics and generics, which you we're on board with me (laughs) for specifics versus generics for about 10 minutes. And then I knew how to push you off, off your rocker, off the rails, off into the stratosphere. No, no, but I don't think we disagree as much as you think. Like just because I don't say the name of the town that Bride of the Tornado happens in, or the name of the character doesn't mean I'm not specific. There is a scene, for instance, in which like the main character is afraid of her parents for the first time. Uh, her parents have like taken her sister 
to go to take part in this ritual that our main character is very afraid of. And she goes, she runs downstairs, and she jumps into a, uh, a box that all the Christmas decorations are in, which basically I base that on a box that our Christmas decorations have been in when I was growing up. And I would jump into that box. And mm-hmm. even if like, the name of the town isn't said, that's, a, that's, a, that's like the most, the name of the town, the name of the character, that's the most obvious and like, coarse-grained thing you can say. But a more fine-grained thing is this. Let me just read this paragraph. Okay. Um, I threw open the big Christmas box, scrambled in, and let the cardboard lid flop down on top of me. Our washing machine had come in this box. Ever since I was little, I remembered this box being in the corner of the basement storage room, full of Christmas bric-a-brac, rolls of gleaming wrapping paper, a big plastic plug-in Santa for the porch, fake holly wreaths with fake red berries, shimmering tinsel ropes, tangled heaps of lights, glittering silver and gold ornaments, and homely wooden ornaments, and gingerbread men sprayed with some kind of creepy fixative that made them last forever. You kind of wanted to eat them, but you couldn't, which was weird because you'd had this vague desire to eat the same inedible gingerbread man every Christmas since you were four years old. And lying loose at the bottom of the carton, a nativity scene we hadn't put out in years. The figures were broken and some were missing. One and a half wise men, baby Jesus held together by tape, a bunch of chipped farm animals. My parents kept putting it out every year until Cecilia, the sister, finally said, you know, in the Bible, Joseph had a head which shamed my parents into buying a new one, but they kept this old one in storage anyway because it feels weird to throw away a nativity scene. Okay, that is super fucking specific. That is. You don't need to know the name of a town to do a scene like that. Yeah. I I, want to push back on your idea that Bride of the Tornado is an unspecific book because it is very specific about these specific like material and emotional realities that you encounter as a kid and the way you encountered them as a kid. And that doesn't necessarily have to be like um, these kind of U.S. census realities of what's your name, what city are you in, what state are you in, what's the population, uh, what, what, what is the latitude and longitude of where you are. Those are not emotionally resonant specifics. What I just read is an emotionally resonant specific. It was. It, was that from life? Was that, was that from your own childhood? Uh, it's partially it's partially from my childhood. It's partially from my college girlfriend's childhood. The thing about in the Bible, Joseph had a head um, is something like from her family's nativity scene. And she told me that like when I was like 20 and I never forgot about it. There's many ways to be specific is what I'm saying. And I, I don't want to let you get away with saying that Bride of Trinidad is not specific because it is specific, but it's specific in a different way than what you're saying. It doesn't have to be specific in this kind of U.S. census way to be emotionally and resonant. Yeah, there's a lot of specifics in Pride of the Tornado. There's a lot of, this feels real, this feels like real life, this feels like a real moment. I mean, and I love the way you use Emily Dickinson's poetry in the book, but I am just the sort of reader who it's like, I was put off by not naming her. You are a slave to rules. You see a, sl- a rule kind of uh, uh, broken, and you immediately overreact because you are a man of rules. But I don't think I mean, some other readers are like that, too. But I think more readers are just kind of more loosey goosey and let it go. Like, but you, since you are a man who makes your living making and promulgating and enforcing rules, if you see a rule broken, you're immediately going to overreact to it. But I don't think it necessarily makes it a weaker story. No, I don't think it made it a weaker story at all. I think it took me out of it to a certain extent. But I think that it was 
you were still using that element very strongly and you were using it very intentionally. You were using it in the way you want to use it if it didn't feel like, oh, James is making a mistake here. I mean, the Emily Dickinson poem is, I'm nobody. Who are you? She's literally nobody. You know, yeah. she doesn't have the whole idea of the story is her identity is getting erased and replaced with what the, the city, the, the town wants her to be. It's not a arbitrary choice to not give her a name. It's not like a, a self-consciously arty choice either. It's like something that has to do with the theme of what's going on. And that's why I chose that particular Emily Dickinson poem, I'm Nobody. Yeah, it goes right back to Roger O'Thornhill in North by Northwest. Uh, nothing, nothing is my middle name. Yes. No, I think it's good. I think it's a good novel. Very emotionally powerful. Very dreamlike. It's very disturbing. And I think that it's got, but it's, you know, it's told in a way that is, you know, like you said, breaks a lot of my rules is something that I had when I was first giving you notes on it. I'm like, this book breaks every possible rule. I'm done giving you notes on it. I'm not going to continue giving notes on it. And I stopped halfway through giving you notes on it. And it was only until years later after you had given me a lot of notes on my books and you're like, uh, dude. And I'm like, okay, I'll go back. I'll give you a, I'll give you full notes on this book, even though it breaks out of my rules. And is if I'm just going through it and I'm going like, uh, here, here's how to write. I'm going to be like tearing my hair out and I'm going to be like, but then when I finally realized like, okay, James is really come through with me on a lot of notes that I really needed at important times. And he wants notes on this and I'll, and I'll give it to him. Then I was, Oh, well, this is, this is a really well-written novel, but it's a novel that is written in, in a way that violates rule number. What are we up to on the book? Rule number 119 <laughs> of the expanded ultimate story checklist. Okay, James. But this is like the, the constant push and pull between you and me, right? Yeah. Because I'm an intuitive writer and you're an analytic writer. Would you say that's true? I wouldn't put myself in that box. I think I'm I'm large. I contain multitudes, which I know is a phrase you hate. When you said that the the name of that character from Mad Men, wasn't it Whitman? Yes. Uh, the <laughs> large and contains the multitudes. Yes. There you go. It all comes together. We're tying uh, it all um, together. Yeah, I nailed it. Uh, but but what, what I mean to say is that it's. I think it is hard to give credit to something that your friend has written. Because when something is bound and it's in a book and it feels official, then it feels like something that is in the world and you kind of can't deny and you give it more credit. But if you are breaking rules and you are doing things your own way, then if you're reading it in manuscript, it's harder to credit it. And I found this when I was teaching 6th, 7th, and 8th graders at Northwestern University. They had this thing called the Center for Talent Development. And the kids would come in. I taught a three-week class in fantasy and science fiction writing. It's like eight in the morning until three in the afternoon, Monday through Friday for three weeks. It was grueling. But I found that like I, I was telling them, oh, here's how you write a novel. And I was kind of like going by the rules. And kids would do these extremely wild things. And, and I realized these wild things that they were doing, in the end, they were, it was writing by children. So it wasn't all you know, that great. But like some of the formal moves they would make, I was like, I'm I'm dinging them for it here, but I would have let Kazuo Ishiguro get away with it. Yeah, it was because I was reading a Microsoft Word document printed in twelve point Times New Roman on eight and a half by eleven paper. That's why I didn't like it, you know. But once it's a book, it's, it suddenly feels like okay, well, this is a book now, and I, I don't know. Sometimes that's a hump that you have to get over. Yeah, 
Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and, you know, just the power dynamic of somebody coming to you going like, I have no power. I have no clout. I have no knowledge of whether or not this is any good or whether or not it will ever get published. Help me. Then mm-hmm. that puts you in just a massively powerful position and a massively judgmental position where you're like, OK, you know, let me tell you what you're doing wrong and that this has not been published. And obviously, if somebody is saying, like, here's my book that's been published, what do you think of it? Then all that power dynamic completely changes and completely shifts. And yeah, the two times that I read Brian Fernando, yeah, it was very much on two different sides of that power dynamic. One of the things about it is that it's like, in a way, you're right. There's a lot of people who are like, I love this book. This is super strange. And they say, even in the reviews, this isn't for everybody. And some people say, what the fuck is this book? I have no idea what was going on. And uh, I didn't even know the name of the character or where they were, you know, and they say exactly what you said. And I think as an artist, you simply have to have the bravery to alienate and say, this is what I am doing. This is my project. And sometimes when you, I mean, this is kind of like going to the heart of what we're doing in this podcast, but it's like, are these rules simply the objective rules of what makes something good? Or are like, these are like, like, well, if you want to please people, here's how you please them. But sometimes you yeah. don't always want to please everybody. <laughs> and sometimes you're just writing something for, if you, you, know, you, you have a classroom of 30 people and there's five kids in the back room who are going to like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the rest of the people are going to be like, what is this nerd shit? But it's okay to write for those five kids in the back of the room. If you can find a publisher and... That's the amazing thing is that you have found a publisher. You found a publisher who is like, uh-huh. you don't write for everybody, James, and this book isn't going to be for everybody, but let's go ahead and publish it. And you write for smaller publishers who are like, you know, your second, third books were for smaller publishers and who are like, these are books that aren't for everybody. We're going to help them find the people who they are for. And right. larger publishers don't do that. Larger publishers. Well, I mean, Quirk is like, like distributed by, you know, Penguin Random House. They're, I mean, they, they've got like people like, like, Grady Hendrix writing for them. They're not like completely obscure. It's not like writing for like a small publisher. I, I wouldn't say that Quirk is like a small publisher per se. I would say that they are definitely weird. Um, yeah. But like they've had big like bestsellers on their lists. But I think that in a way those finance my weirdness. Yeah. Grady Hendrix does a hit for them or Clay McLeod Chapman. And then I can write my stuff in the shadow of that. But I think their idea is that, like, we'll let you have a couple weird novels, but then you better write for us a Grady Hendrix novel somewhere down the line after we've let you write a bunch of weird stories. Um, We'll see what happens. (laughs) We'll see what happens with that. Good luck with all that. Okay, so, James, this has been an excellent episode. Why is in all our best episodes? We have teased out genuine differences of opinion in us with me on the side of orthodoxy and you on the side of heterodoxy which is our respective comfort zones. Okay, James, we'll go ahead. Uh, We'll try to do a new episode without making people wait so long. Any final thoughts? I'm looking forward to seeing you at the sitcom, the Christmas episode sitcom reading party at my house on December 10th. Well, you don't want to say that on the podcast because then people will show up at the party. (laughs) You don't want the great unwashed masses who listen to this podcast to all show up at your party. Okay. Figure it out, people. See if you can come. (laughs) All right. Okay. All right. All right. We'll be all done. Okay. Bye, James. Good night. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Bride of the Tornado, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.